well, as serious as we get. We're in uh, Joshua. We're actually in chapter 15, but we're going to look, believe it or not, at chapters 15 through 19 this morning. You'll see how that's possible. So uh, chapter 15, hold your finger there and get into chapter 19, because the verse we're going to be reading is uh, verse 51 of chapter 19 to set the context for where we're going. So our text is Joshua 15 through 19. The topic, Joshua casts lots to determine the portions of land each tribe will be responsible to settle and then control. The title of our message, whole lot of settling going on. Verse 51 of chapter 19. These were the inheritances which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel divided as an inheritance by Lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, so they made an end of dividing the country. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, when we read these historic accounts of what you were doing among your people Israel in the Old Testament... Uh, We marvel at your mercy and grace towards them, but we also want to glean insight for ourselves, insight for living in 2008 in Kings County and the surrounding areas so that we, Lord, can fully settle in the territories that you've given us. More than anything, though, Lord, we always want to see Jesus. We want to see him not just in the text, but in our lives, drawing close to us, loving us, caring for us, guiding us, leading us. Lord, I pray that when we leave this place this morning, we'll be more aware of your affections towards us and more on fire towards you than when we came in. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Every now and then, like you, I go to the website of the California State Controller. Well, no, you can go there and you can search for unclaimed property. It's very interesting. Why I do it, I don't know, because I already know I have no unclaimed property. But I went there uh, Saturday uh, and was surprised to see that MetLife owes my father $53.06. And yes, I'm going to tell him as soon as I can think of a way of getting a portion of it. I'll set up a dummy corporation offshore and say that I'll take 50% of any unclaimed property. He'd go for it, I'm sure. Anyway, I'm just making that part up, but it does. So you go there and you just put in your name and uh, you'd be surprised. There's a bunch of money owed to different Calvary chapels. Uh, again, not us, uh, but uh, just it's interesting to see these unclaimed properties. Unclaimed property characterizes the tribes of Israel as they each in turn receive their inheritance. Tribe after tribe fails to fully settle the land that is given to them. If we understand their territories in Canaan as being typical of various spiritual territories in our lives, then we will be able to learn from their failures. Your marriage, your family, your job, your career, where you go to school, all of these and really everywhere else you find yourself are the territories you've been given by the Lord to settle in and fully occupy. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, eliminate attitudes that will unsettle you. And number two, encourage attitudes that will settle you. And so first of all, let's eliminate the attitudes that will unsettle you. 
The next five chapters, if you go back now to chapter 15, right after you answer your phone, uh, chapter 15 through 19, the next five chapters, they describe the borders and the boundaries, the cities and the villages that were distributed to the Israelites. As you read these chapters, you find lengthy, complicated legal descriptions that are interrupted occasionally by a comment or two explaining a failure to fully settle the land. It is those comments that we want to explore. They are going to have the most meaning for us. The distribution of the land began with the tribe of Judah here in chapter 15. Excuse me. In verses 1 through 12, the borders and boundaries of their portion are listed. In verses 20 through 62, the cities and villages within their portion are listed. Verses 13 through 19 were the subject of our last study, if you were here last Sunday. In them, we saw the success of one remarkable member of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, as he conquered Hebron and uh, made for the conquer of Debir. Now, the chapter closes on an ominous note in verse 63. So get to chapter 15, verse 63, where you read this. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this very day. Now, before we can comment on this one verse, we need to understand three facts surrounding the Jebusites and Jerusalem. Number one, in the initial campaign to take the land, the Israelites put to death the king of Jerusalem. We read that back in chapter 10, verse 26 and verse 42. Number two, they did occupy Jerusalem for a time. If you read ahead to Judges, chapter 1, verse 8, which overlaps uh, to a certain extent the book of Joshua, you see that they did occupy Jerusalem for a time. And third, the full and complete settlement of Jerusalem would not take place until David was crowned king and reigned over Israel. And when David showed up, he easily went in and conquered Jerusalem and began his reign. And so we see here, as we simplify these facts, the king of Jerusalem was defeated. The Israelites could occupy Jerusalem, but did not do so fully until their king appeared and led them in triumph. It becomes for us a picture of our struggle against the flesh. Satan was defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ by the death of our Savior. He's like this defeated king of Jerusalem. We can have victory over sin, but we still struggle against the flesh. The struggle will continue until our king appears. It will continue until the Lord takes us home and we no longer have this physical body to contend with as we seek to walk in a manner pleasing to God. As long as we are on the earth in this body, there is a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And that, as we've seen over the years and in our own lives, that is the normal Christian life. The fact that we struggle against the flesh and that we occasionally or even often fail, that isn't really the problem with regards to settling in various territories of our lives. That's just a daily struggle. What can keep us unsettled is that we grow complacent in that struggle. It's too easy to attribute our lack of spiritual progress in a certain territory to the flesh and do nothing about it. When we think or we say things like, well, that's just the way I am, when we make those kinds of excuses, 
we have become complacent in our daily struggle. And the longer I sit around and say, well, Lord, or, you know, or whoever I'm talking to, hey, that's just the way I am. I'm not really going to fully occupy my marriage or my workplace or my school or any other relationship uh, because I'm expressing an unwillingness to continue really in the struggle against uh, sin, against my flesh. It's like, hey, there's nothing I can do. And the sad thing is, it's usually more mature Christians who come to this opinion. After you've been struggling for years and years and years and you think, well, you know, uh, this is who I am. This is my personality. I'm just a uh, kind of a cranky person. Uh, and you just better get used to that. Uh, and that, that, that's a problem. You're not going to make progress with that attitude. God knows that's just the way you are and that's the problem. He wants to change it. He's at work to change you. The fact that we will not be sinless until we receive our glorified body should be no excuse to quit growing in the Lord. When I settle for less in my struggle against the flesh, the various territories God has marked out for me remain unsettled. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, the proper attitude would be, wow, after all these years, that's the way I am. Lord, help me to change. Father, give me your grace to say no to sin, to deny myself, to give up that selfishness, and to be more like my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be daily conformed into his image. Uh, and to grow. Now, as we turn the page to chapter 16 and look at the tribes descended from Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, we encounter another attitude that will leave us unsettled. Look at verse 10 of chapter 16. And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. Now look ahead in chapter 17 to verses 12 and 13. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. God had made no provision for the Canaanites to be made slaves. They were to be slain. Now, we've seen in the book of Joshua, Rahab the harlot came to know the Lord. Uh, the Gibeonites as a people came to know the Lord. And so God always had a provision for mercy if any Canaanite peoples wanted to turn to him and serve him and follow him. He would save them and graft them into the nation of Israel. But there was no provision for making you a slave. You were to be slain and done away with. If you can enslave someone, then you can utterly drive them out. You have enough power to enslave them, then with determination, you can drive them out. The failure to do so was because the Canaanites were determined, and that indicates that the Israelites grew weary in their task. It wasn't that they couldn't do it, it's that it became wearisome to them, easier to subject them than, than to eliminate them. Growing weary is a major reason why so much spiritual territory remains unsettled in our lives. It's easy to start out well. It is the finishing that we have trouble with. And I've noticed this, especially in a long-term situation, like a marriage, or maybe you've worked at the same place for a long time, or one of those things. It becomes uh, 
kind of habitual. It becomes a little bit mundane. It becomes repetitive. And on a spiritual level, you have a tendency to grow weary in that situation because things change sometimes incrementally, so slightly that you don't really see God working. I mean, let's be honest. When you, uh, if you got saved when you were an adult, Later in your life, there's a, a you know, a, a kind of a, a, a real rush of activity right at the beginning. Uh, you know, things happen in your marriage, things happen in your family, things happen at work, uh, and, and uh, you're all excited about that. But the longer you stay in those same relationships, things have a tendency to settle back down, and you don't see really God at work in the way that you uh, did at first, perhaps, or would like to see Him, and you start to grow weary. You're not in a sprint. You're not even in a marathon. You're in a long-distance race in the Christian life. And that's an important thing to remember. People think you're in a sprint. You know, those of you who run, uh, I've never been much of a runner. I don't think I can even run now. Uh, you know, I'm one of those people. How many of you have seen the movie Wally, the kids' movie Wally? Have you seen that movie? Oh, you have to see that. It's a fantastic movie for adults. But uh, I can, now I can't talk to you about it because you haven't seen it. It ruins my whole illustration. I'm done. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, forget that. We'll edit that out. Anyway, uh, I don't run. There's people in the movie later on who don't move uh, because they're, well, you'll see when you watch the movie. Uh, anyway, uh, if you're training for a sprint and then sprinting, that's one thing. You can't sprint a marathon uh, and you can't marathon a long distance run. And so we're training for the long haul and we're not to grow weary in well-doing, but we're to continue moving forward. I think about the Lord Jesus Christ and this is all, it's always good to just think about the Lord and put him into all of our thinking. So here's the Lord, uh, doesn't start his earthly ministry until he's 30 years old. And so for 30 years, we know very little about the Lord. Uh, we see his birth, we see his family uh, chased down into Egypt to keep him protected and then come back and settle in Nazareth. We see him at about age 12 there in the temple. Nothing much more is known about him uh, scripturally. And so, but we understand that, you know, he was a good son, uh, that he grew uh, in, the, you know, uh, in physically, that he was a carpenter. Uh, we speculate that he did a great job in all of those things. When he finally comes on the scene to start his ministry, his father speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He doesn't say in whom I will be well pleased, but in whom I am well pleased. So the father looked at his son and for 30 years, relative obscurity, living in the worst place in the world in Nazareth, doing nothing but a daily mundane routine of being a son and a, a carpenter's apprentice and a carpenter. God said, man, there's a life that, that is fantastic. And, and if, you're, you know, if anybody is going to grow weary... It would be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in human flesh, wondering when he's going to start his earthly ministry and save the world. And yet day after day, hour after hour, the Lord just living a mundane life. But God is able to stamp on that life. This is a life. This Look at this life. I am so pleased with this life. And so we're not to grow weary and, uh, and, and kind of pull back, uh, but to just... Every day, ask the Lord to infuse us with his presence and with his power. Now, no need to turn the page. Our next unsettling insight is in 
chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. It says, Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? So Joshua answered them, If you are a great people, then go to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley of chariots of iron, both those who are of Beth Sheen and its towns and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not only have one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooded, you shall cut it down, and to its farthest extent shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Now, we know that the land was being portioned fairly by lot. It wasn't really Joshua's decision at all. Yet they complained he was acting wrongly because he didn't recognize how great they were and give them a greater land. Now, this kind of unsettling attitude sometimes can be seen in the church. Sometimes uh, someone thinks they are blessed by God. They're gifted in a certain area. If they're not recognized or if they're not recognized soon enough, they can complain and want more. God may indeed have blessed and gifted them, but we are first and foremost servants. As long as we are serving the Lord in any capacity, we need not complain about our lack of recognition. Gifting is secondary. Gifting is always secondary. What's primary is having a servant's heart. God would rather have someone who has very little experience but has a servant's heart than someone who has grown a little bit proud of their gifting and how great they are. Uh, And all of us, we just need to continue to cultivate a servant's heart and to desire to just serve the Lord in any capacity, uh, no matter what we think we ought to be doing. Um, You know, and and it's it's a difficult thing uh, to swallow our pride sometimes, to humble ourselves and to just be content with the service that God's called us to. Joshua wouldn't budge. He couldn't budge because the choice was God's, not his. So he encouraged them. He says, hey, if if you really want more, then go after something more difficult. After all, if you're such a great people, you ought to be able to do great things. And, And this is a great lesson. God doesn't reward you with less to do. God rewards you with more to do. Uh, and, and so if you, uh, if you're, the, you know, if you're thinking, I want to serve the Lord, then he's going to give you something more to do, something more difficult, not something easier. There's no real retirement in the Christian life. We often leave territory unsettled as these guys wanted to, because they wanted to settle for something more comfortable. They said, Hey, we want more territory. And Joshua said, well, here's some mountain territory where you could, you know, deforest it and really get going. And they said, no, that's, that's a lot of work. I don't know how Joshua contained himself, really. You know, I mean, just take up a spear and start chucking it. But, uh, you know, these guys, but he, you know, so that's the idea. It's like they just wanted to really settle in. They wanted to retire. Hey, we've proved we're a great people, so we just want to settle in to a very comfortable area. We don't want to deal with any iron chariots. We don't want to deforest any mountains. You know, maybe you don't know who we are. Uh, and Joshua says, yeah, I know who you are. And if you want this, if you want more territory, go get it. It's out there. 
Now, there's one more unsettling attitude, and it's in the opening verses of chapter 18. Verse 1, it says, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. They set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Pick out from among you three men for each tribe, and I will send them. They shall rise and go through the land, survey it according to their inheritance, and come back to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in their territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory on the north. You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts and bring the survey here to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose to go away, and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land, survey it, come back to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went, passed through the land, and wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities. And they came to Joshua in the camp in Shiloh. Then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. Now, at some point in the distribution of land, uh, Israel's camp had moved from Gilgal to this place, Shiloh. The tabernacle was set up there, and it would remain there for quite a long time in Israel's history. Although the portions were still chosen by lot, the land required a survey to determine its portions. Apparently, the seven remaining tribes were supposed to have conducted and completed this survey, but they had blown it off. Joshua had to exhort them to get out into the land and survey it. What I see here is that seven tribes were happy to camp around the tabernacle, but hesitant to go out from it to the surrounding territory. An extreme application of this would be a person who maybe attends church regularly, but who keeps their so-called religion to themselves while out in the world. They're content to, you know, go uh, through the motions of attending church and all, but they don't want it to affect the rest of their life. They're not really surveying the rest of their life to see how it could apply. And that's a more appropriate application for us. It's a reminder that the places we find ourselves are territories that really need surveying. We ought to be trying to determine how far we can go in them in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, where you work, where you live, where you go to school, those kinds of things... If you think of them as a territory and have God say, now I want you to survey the territory, what, what can you do in your territory uh, to promote and, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be a witness? I was watching the news the other day, yesterday as a matter of fact, and there's a big movement in New York. Uh, the teachers union there wants to be able to wear political buttons. Uh, and um, uh, they are t- suing and going to court. They're going to decide it Tuesday. Uh, after one of the great holidays of all time, Monday, Columbus Day. Uh, and then Tuesday, they're going to decide this case as to whether they can have this expression. And I thought, you know, uh, that's the kind of thing Christians ought to be doing. Not necessarily the court part of it, because Christians, you know, I think we go too far sometimes. But, you know, in your workplace, you should be doing stuff until they tell you not to. I mean, some of you have strict rules. I'm not asking you to break any rules paint your face saying Jesus or anything like that, you know, although that could be cool. Um, 
You don't need to do that. But, you know, you should be trying some stuff. Say, well, what, what kind? You know, maybe I can wear a tie that has scripture on it. Uh, or some kind of a reference. What kind of clothing can I wear? What can I put on my car in my workplace? If I have a little workstation or maybe a break room or whatever, what can I do? Can I put up a poster? Can I bring my Bible? Can I lay out tracts? Can I pass out invitations? What can I do that, you know, without actually breaking the law or going against my employer? Because after all, we're supposed to honor our employer. And then if I do something and they come to me and say, hey, we, won't, we don't want to see this junk here anymore. All right. God bless you. I love you. I'll take it and put it over here instead. You know, I mean, or whatever. And and just this kind of a thing where I've surveyed the territory and hey, this break room, this is a spiritual territory. This is where everybody hangs out. What can I sneak into the break room? Maybe Pastor Gene's rapture poster that I stole. Maybe that would be a cool place now that I'm busted and I can't give it back. And, and, you know, there's things like that. And it can be, it's actually kind of fun. Again, I'm not asking you to break the law. We don't want to be those kinds of Christians that are always challenging people and, you know, in their faces and stuff. But, you know, what's, there's nothing wrong with your boss calling you and saying, I don't want to see this anymore. Okay, so you don't want to see things that would lead people to eternal life, save marriages and make this a better workplace. I get it now. I used to love doing stuff like that when I was in the workplace. It was so fun. It was great. Uh, I mean, just, you know, just to put it in perspective. And, and then they didn't know, are you joking with me or not? You know, I want 10 minutes with you, Pastor Gene, you know, and stuff. But uh, so this is the kind of thing that you can do. You can survey your territory and figure out what you can do to be the witness that God has called you to be. Now, it wasn't all failure for the Israelites. We saw the success of Caleb at the very beginning of this distribution of land in chapter 15. Now, here at the end in chapter 19, we're going to see two more examples of successful settling that will encourage attitudes to settle us. Our first positive attitude since Caleb is in verse 40 of chapter 19, where it says, "...the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families." And then it mentions his territory. And pick up the story in verse 47. And the border of the children of Dan went beyond these because the children of Dan went up to fight against Lashem and took it. And they struck it with the edge of the sword. They took possession of it and dwelt in it. They called Lashem Dan after the name of Dan, their father. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, these cities with their villages. Now, in verse 47, it says that they went beyond the borders that were given to them. Uh, And that's what's exciting about Dan. For a while, they were slackers. They didn't do their survey. But then they got encouragement from Joshua, exhortation. Hey, go out and survey the land. And then when they did, they saw more land that wasn't allotted to anybody and said, hey, we're going to take that too. And so they got all fired up again about who they were. And that's what we need to do. Uh, and, and, And one of the attitudes I see here that I want to talk about is that they were attentive to what was going on. They saw what was going on around them. They, they took their own land and then they saw that there was other land that could be taken and they went for it. We need to cultivate more and more an attitude of attentiveness to what's going on around us. Once while walking along behind, uh, or excuse me, he was walking along, he's being thronged by a crowd. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, stopped And he surprised everybody when he said, who touched me? And his disciples said, basically, are you nuts? 
Everybody's touching you. What do you mean? Who touched me? But Jesus was attentive and he understood that one woman in that crowd who was plagued with a lifetime disease had reached out to touch the hem of his garment, even in a superstitious way, thinking she would be healed. And he understood that power had gone out of him and he stopped everything he was doing in that whole procession. Uh, and he said, somebody touched me and I want to pay attention to that need right now. And I think that if we become a more attentive people, whether it's at home or at work or in the neighborhood or at school, God will show us things that are going on around us and, and lead us to people and into situations where we can give our testimony and be a witness. Think of some of the times you have shared your faith with other people. It's, it's just come out of nowhere, hasn't it? Where you just had almost a chance encounter with somebody uh, and, and all of a sudden you find yourself talking to them about the Lord. And I think that's the Lord's way of saying, hey, I could do this more. All you have to do is pay attention. And then just even on another level, even here at the church and when you're among Christians, pay attention to what's going on around you. You know, people don't always come to church just out of habit. A lot of us are hurting every time we come to a service. We're hurting in a very severe way, emotionally or physically. There are things going on in our lives that, you know, you don't really talk about. You don't want to talk about. You don't have kind of a, a forum to talk about. There's, you know, you're here at church and it's like, you know, everything is, hey, how are you? How's it going? And, you know, you don't really have time. But you, you don't really, it hasn't risen to the point where you want to call somebody and talk to them about it. So you're kind of in a spiritual limbo. And and maybe you come and whether you're hoping or not hoping that somebody will talk to you, you you go away and you're just kind of you're let down. And I, I think that if we paid more attention to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, I'm not saying you go up to everybody because I, I hate this when just let me tell you this. I shouldn't say I hate it. I'm sorry. Forgive me, Lord. But I don't want you to go up to people and say, hey, how's it going? And they say, fine. You say, no, really, really. How's it really going? Because, you know, you look a certain way today. It, people do this to me all the time. Not here so much, but in other venues, people come up to me and say, you know, because you look weird. And I'm thinking, of course I do. I'm 53 years old. I'm, you know, I'm not the man I used to be. But, you know, they say, you seem a little this or you seem a little that. And I say, yeah, I'm angry now because you think I'm this way, you know. But so I don't want, you know, I want everybody to be a spiritual detective. But I do think that, you know, it's like spiritual forensics, you know, and stuff. Hmm. Hmm. Body language. You know, I say, I see that you're hurting. Uh, what gave it away? The crutch. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> there are people who just need. I mean, and it doesn't be, need to be a big ministry. You know, I, I, I texted a couple of people this morning. I said, hey, I miss you. We love you. I text some pastors every now and then with a Bible. Ver I mean, you know, just I mean, those little kinds. Some people, they get really excited about that kind of stuff. I do. Oh, somebody's thinking about me. And so there's so much that we can do if we would attend to one another. And a lot of times you've talked to people, not just at this church, but at other churches you've attended to. And you say, hey, how come you're not attending? Oh, nobody reached out to me. Nobody said hello to me. Nobody was friendly to me, which, I mean, you know, we're too friendly here. Well, I'm joking, but I mean, we're a friendly church. You get first contact, you get greeted, you get ushers, you get all kinds of contact here. But there's a level at which people exist sometimes. I'm hurting and I need help. I don't know how to get it. I don't want to ask for it. If you'll just pay some attention to me, if you'll just say hi to me, if you'll just pray with me. I didn't come forward for prayer. I should have. But if you'll just notice me, Jesus will be real in my life. 
And, and that's what these Danites represent to me. They, they saw, hey, there's a city, Lashem, let's take it. Let's take it for God. Let's go there and see what the Lord will do. And that's what we need to do in our territories. This, we need to survey our territory the way the Lord wants us to and start taking it and then start attending to what's happening in it, to the people that are in it. Maybe the very people we've been praying for for decades or for years or for months who we think, hey, these people are never going to change. In fact, they've gotten worse I, be, you know, I want to quit praying for them because they're getting worse and worse, and we need to be encouraged about that. One more attitude I want to mention, and it's only fitting that it belonged to Joshua. Verse 49, when they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for, Timnath Sarah, in the mountains of Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt in it. Now, the city that Joshua asked for was within the borders of his tribe, and it was a difficult, infertile region upon which he would have to build a city. I only tell you that because you're thinking, like I am, Joshua should be able to ask for any city he wants. I mean, look at all that Joshua's been through as their leader, wandering in the wilderness, all those kinds of things. I mean, he, you know, in our society, Joshua gets first choice. And Joshua basically says, I just want the portion that the Lord has for, within, you know, for me within my tribe's portion. And actually, I want that city. I'm going to be content uh, to build a city there and to continue uh, with the Lord. And contentment really is the lesson that we get from Joshua. Contentment might be the key to everything that we've talked about this morning. Listen to these verses encouraging us to an attitude, an overall attitude in life of contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Philippians 4.11, Not that I speak in regard to need. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And Hebrews 13.5, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now Hebrews 13.5 really gives us the key to contentment. If contentment is the key to the rest of this, this is the key to contentment. He says, be content because the Lord said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You've got Jesus with you always in all of your territories. His presence there is what transforms your marriage and your family and your work and your ministry. Whatever's going on in those areas Whatever changes I might think, Lord, if, if, if my wife or my husband was just a little changed, if my boss or my employees were a little different, if my school situation was a little bit altered, if my, you know, whatever it is, if it was changed just a little, every, it would be bearable, it would be possible, I could go on with this. But the Lord says, forget that, I'm with you in all of those situations, and because I am with you, you can be content and we can conquer this territory. It's just that the conquering is usually on a different level than we like. It's on a spiritual level. It's, it's humbling ourselves. It's becoming more forgiving. It's uh, resting in the promises of God rather than everything changing so that I just feel better, so that I'm happier. And the Lord says, no, learn to be content with me, in me. I'm with you. I've begun a good work in you. I'll perform it until the day I take you home to be with me. All things really are working together for the good because you love me and you're the called according to my purposes. 
This is the lot I've chosen for you. This is the territory you are to grow and develop in. And the things that I want to grow in you are spiritual. They're not physical. They're, they're, you know, they're, there might be a physical component to them, but they are spiritual. I want to make you more like me. I want you to be like me. I want you to react the way I would react in these situations. And then it becomes clear. It's, oh, okay, Lord, so you want me to love my wife the way you love me. You want me to submit to my husband the way uh, you, know, you were submitted to the Father. And then I start to think, well, Lord, if you could do that as the sinless, perfect son of God in this terrible world in which you came to, not even a modern world with cell phones, some backward world, and if you did it as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, then guess what? I guess I can do it too because you're with me. And I'm going to set my affections on you and let you change me moment to moment, glory to glory, until you come for me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for these things. They're precious and beautiful. They're wonderful. They're too lofty for us, but they're also simple to understand. I pray that we would begin to apply them in our lives as we simply set our uh, eyes upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Uh, Spend some time on campus, uh, cafes gone, all that kind of good stuff. Cruise through the bookstore, say hi to the people over there. They'll be encouraged. Um, meet with us tonight in Lemoore if you'd like. We're having fun there. Uh, 6 o'clock to 7.15 at King's Christian School. And uh, other stuff in your bulletin. We still need help for the Triple H. So uh, if you're thinking about helping, 45 minutes at a time, uh, email us or whatever. Check out the website and get connected with us. May God bless you and keep you this week as you seek to serve him. Amen.